Many years ago, 20 years ago or so, am I on here? I don't feel like I'm on. Am I on? There I am. Sammy Sosa was a baseball player who was known for his home run hitting, a fan favorite. And one day, he had a very embarrassing thing happen. In 2003, in the first inning of a baseball game, he swung at the ball and connected with the ball, and his bat shattered. Well, that's not any big thing in Major League Baseball. That happens a lot. But after his bat shattered, the next thing you know, he was ejected from the game because the umpires looked at his bat and found piece of cork in his bat, which is illegal. The theory goes that if you put cork in your bat, it'll make your ball go further once you hit it off the bat. And there are people who say that doesn't help at all, but Sammy Sosa thought it did. And so right there in front of everybody on the baseball field, the corked bat lay in pieces, and he's ejected. And his words afterwards were, he was very sorry, it was an accident. He had all these bats, and one of them was corked. And that one corked bat he used in batting practice and in like home run derbies, because he said, people just want to see me hit the ball and hit home runs. And they did at that time. It was home run mania. Uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire in a home run record chase. And they did want to see that. And Major League Baseball examined all of his other bats. Over 70 of them, none of them had cork. But the one that he used that day revealed himself to be a cheater. Revealed himself to be a fake in some sort or another. Well, there's a spiritual application of this, isn't there? See, his bat looked normal. His bat looked normal from the outside. It was just another bat that a Major League Baseball player would use. But inside, it was different. And the same thing can happen with us in our spiritual lives. The outside can look one way while the inside is another. So we can have people who are professing the name of Christ and they look one way on the outside and not on the inside. They're they're whitewashed tombs on the inside. We can also have people who are believers who are cleansed on the inside and their works look one way or on the outside, but in between their motives are to glorify themselves instead of God. And that can all go on for a long time until our spiritual bat is shattered and the corks laying in the field in front of everyone. So it doesn't matter what it might look like. What matters is the heart behind that. What matters is the work of the spirit or the work of a man. You see, we can do things in our life that look like the work of the spirit, especially when we are pious and holier than thou. But we can be pursuing the wrong motives and it be dependence upon man, dependence upon our own wisdom, dependence upon our own strength, our own sustenance, our own whatever. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, there's something that happens in a believer. And that one of those happenings when we receive the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit begins to work to produce fruit in us. And that Holy Spirit, as he works, the third person of the Trinity that we just sang about, that the Holy Spirit works in our lives and produces the fruit. And it is his fruit. It is spiritual fruit. And that's what he produces in us. And there are times that our fruit can look like his fruit Until he reveals it to not be his fruit. And how does that happen? The father, the vine dresser, prunes the tree. And takes the bad branches away. Because they're not bearing fruit. And the implication is not that there may not be fruit on it. But they're not good fruit. They're not spiritual fruit. We can produce our own man-made fruit. But God never seems to let that stand for those people who are in Christ. 
because he is constantly tending to his vineyard. And those who are connected to the true vine, Jesus, produce the fruit. And that was the purpose. The purpose of being connected to Jesus with the Father's pruning is that we would bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, according to John 15. So what does your fruit look like? What does it look like inside? What does it look like outside? What's it look like when God causes your bat to break in front of everyone? Is it corked or is it pure wood? Because if it's pure wood, God's in charge of all that he's doing and he's glorifying himself through you. And your dependence upon him means you are are depending upon a spiritual force in your life, God in the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is a force. He's a person, but he's working in your life, moving and shaping and producing. You're tied to Christ whose work is perfect. You're obeying his word. You're worshiping the father. And so when your bat breaks and all of our bats will break, will they not? There'll be times in our life where things fall apart all the way around us. When it's spiritual fruit, God is glorified even in the breaking. And when it's not spiritual fruit, he's glorified, but he's breaking something else, isn't he? He's making his presence known in a different way. Well, again, Isaiah is speaking to our day. He's speaking to us personally. He's speaking to our day. And he's concerned about the fruit of the people that are listening. He's concerned that their trust is in earthly things instead of God, who is spirit. He's concerned that their life is a life of ease in sin rather than a life of ease in salvation. And he's concerned about this in the same way he's always concerned. He brings the promise of judgment and he brings the promise of salvation. There is judgment and there is hope in judgment and hope. And it's no more prominent than it is in this woe before us this morning. So we're going to look at this and we're going to see some things that are as if Isaiah is standing in, in our own world today. <laughs> in, at the end of January in 2023, talking about our world. That's how prescient it is for us. But if we just let it give us a diagnosis of what's going on around us instead of what's going on in us. So that we might bow to the Father's work in pruning us in those spiritual ways so that we produce fruit and more fruit and much fruit then we've missed Isaiah's point because he is about talking to the people of God, those in covenant relationship with them who will be obedient. And that is all of our profession here or most of our profession, at least that we love him and our love is manifested by our obedience. Isaiah encourages us in that this morning at the same time that he challenges us to let the Lord prune what he will turn to Isaiah chapter 31 I'm not going to spend much time talking about where we've been because Isaiah 31 basically recaps where we've been in the last chapter. This woe is encompassed in chapter 31 and in 32. I'm not going to take the time to read it all, but we will read it piece by piece this morning. That remember, this is the fifth woe or ah, and I'll just get out of the way right off the bat. I have no idea why the ESV chooses chapter 31 in the fifth woe to translate it woe while all the rest of them are translated ah. I don't know why that is. I wish I could call one of them. None of the ESV translation committee is on my speed dial. If they're on yours, then please let me know because I want to know. I'm sure there's a reason. I have no doubt that there's a reason, but I can't figure it out. All of the other five woes are the same word. 
And they are appearing to us in the same way. Most translations translate them the same in all six of them. But for some reason, the ESV has chapter 31 starting with woe. And I just say right at the beginning, I have no idea why. But I think woe is a better translation. So I'll just say they get it right in 31. How's that? And I don't mean to, to cast rocks at a translation committee who know the, the, the Hebrew much better than I do. I just don't understand and sometimes I want to. So what I've done in this in our outline is try to summarize these, this big picture of what's going on. Instead of having a very intricate outline that might lose us in the midst of it, I'm looking at this through these overcomings that God does. God overcomes mankind in multiple ways. So in these verses, we are shown three examples of God overcoming mankind. And that first example occurs in chapter 31, verses 1 through 9, which happens to be the entire chapter of 31. The wisdom and strength of God overcomes the wisdom and strength of mankind. Let's read this, or I'll read it and follow along. I want to read just all of this chapter, beginning Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man, not God, And their horses are flesh, not spirit. When Yahweh stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish, all perish together. For thus Yahweh said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So Yahweh of hosts will come down. To fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians shall fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rocks shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares Yahweh, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. I hope you can see the the way that we are shown here that the wisdom of strength of God is not only contrasted with but overcomes the wisdom and strength of mankind, whether for judgment or for salvation. So we see lots of summary statements in these verses that remind us of what we've already um, seen in these woes and a lot of verse uh, from chapter 30. 
Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. That's the purpose, right? It's talking to uh, God's people, to those in Jerusalem about going to Egypt, going south, going back to that country that God released them from captivity um, from generations ago, going back there for their help against the superpower of the day, the Assyrians. And that we have seen this with one king already, and we'll see it with another king in just a few weeks as we get closer to the end of this first section of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters. So now it's brought stark woe to those who do that. And then we have the description. So this, this whole description reminds us of verses 1 through 5 of chapter 30 and verse 16 of chapter 30. They're the ones who rely not on God, but on horses and chariots and horsemen. And right at the center of it in the end of verse 1, but do not look, they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now remember, this is what we dealt with in the last several woes, was they were finding their own. They were making their own associations with other nations. They were trying to make their plans, their own plans, not plans with God, but their own plans in the dark, remember? As if there was a God who didn't see them and didn't know what they were doing. And then their response was so strong that they thought they were the potter when they were really the clay. So this has been over and over and over the assessment of the people of Jerusalem, and it's just summarized here. But in verse 2, and yet, and yet, so there's something else. Even though they continue to do this, have this temptation, and at different levels do it, instead of consulting, instead of seeking the Lord in his counsel, look what God does in verse 2. He is wise and brings disaster. Now that just makes us cock our head. When we talk to our little puppy, um, our youngest one, and we talk, every time we speak to him, he turns his head like that. He knows something's different. We're speaking directly to him. We talk to, hey, teddy bear. And it's usually not, stop that teddy bear. He doesn't usually do it then. But he knows something is different, and that should be us here. We should be cocking our heads. Wait a minute. In wisdom, and yet he is wise and brings disaster. And the word is really the word for evil, an evil disaster. This is God being wise and bringing a disaster. And that makes us cock our head and say, how is that wise? Well, now, maybe we don't cock our head quite as much, do we? After, 20, after 30 chapters now in our 31st chapter of Isaiah, we're used to this. That God is going to rise himself up and he is going to deal with the wicked and deal with the, his people. And he, in the same rising, in the same appearance, in the same actions, he will judge the wicked and redeem his people. And so it's wisdom now. The men think they're wise. The men think they're wise by making their own counsel and ignoring God. But God acts in wisdom, and he brings evil, an evil disaster. Verse 2 also says he does not call back his words. Now, let's just think here for a minute. Uh, Shouldn't we be rejoicing when we hear that? God's word does not come back void. So when God speaks something, it will happen. When God promises something, it will happen. We don't serve a fickle God. We don't serve a God who one day makes a promise because he's in a good mood and the next day takes back that promise because he's in a foul mood. I know you've never done that before, right? You've never changed your mind in a bad mood. God doesn't do that. And we, as his people, should be rejoicing. And the people who are not yet his people should be in fear because they've heard over and over and over now that God is going to act against them. And yet they're still forming their own councils. So he's not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plans. But in his wisdom, he brings calamity, disaster, evil. But will rise against the house of evildoers 
and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Now, who is he talking about here? The evildoers are Judah or Jerusalem. The helpers are Egypt. And those who are working iniquity are Judah, trying to get the help of Egypt instead of the help of their God. But then he returns to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So we have this now, this stark difference between humanity and their wisdom and power and God and his wisdom and power. And that will carry us through the rest of these two chapters. This contrast and this promise of God's spiritual outworking toward his people, his powerful outworking toward his people, and his powerful outworking toward his enemies. And it's, he, we're reminded here of the simple fact, the fact that seems so clear that it doesn't need to be spoken. But the Egyptians and their horses, earlier we find out that they're relying on those horses and chariots and horsemen in, in verse 1. But they're men and they're flesh and they're not God or spirit is what's brought before us. I remember reading one time when Julius Caesar came back from a victorious battle and orchestrated all of the parades over several days to mark his uh, victory and that he would be the last person to bring up these parades except for the prisoners that were behind him that he had, he had brought in from his victories in war. And he's riding on a, white, uh, on a chariot pulled by three white stallions and with all this pomp and circumstance. But if you would look at him, according to the writings of the day, if you would look at what was going on, there was a servant right behind him whispering something in his ear. And what he was whispering the whole time is, you are man and not God. You are man and not God. So even in the midst of a time where the leaders of the Roman Empire were considered to be gods or godlike, there was at least the custom to remind them that even though you were favored with all this victory, you are not God, supposedly to keep them humble. We'll let history decide whether that actually worked and, and accomplished what was intended. But even then, at that time, that was the reminder. And it almost defies reason for me to tell you that we have that voice in our head all the time, don't we? We are not God. We are men. We are his creation. He has set his affections upon us if we are believers. But we are not God. And there's so much theology out there today that if they don't say it, they act as if we are God. That we're somehow part divine in our human form living in this world. That we, we're, just, we're just a little bit off from God. So the voice in our mind is, the, is our conscience and the Holy Spirit speaking through that to remind us that we are man and we are dependent upon God. We are not God. Well, this is what the people of Jerusalem needed to hear that day, that to be reminded that the Egyptians and their horses are men in flesh and they're not God in spirit. And we'll see that developed as we move through. Verse 3 continues, when Yahweh stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. So both Jerusalem and Egypt, and it's also going to include Assyria as well, they will all perish together. Why? Because Yahweh is acting in wisdom and bringing evil upon them. Verse 4, Yahweh then speaks to Isaiah, and he gives these wonderful uh, pictures, these metaphors. One is of a lion crouching over their prey, and then the shepherds see that one of their, their sheep is, is caught in this lion's trap, and the lion is growling over their prey as if the lion is going to be concerned about some shepherds over there making noises and banging their crooks. He's not concerned at all. 
He's not concerned at all. And God, in the same way, is not concerned about those who would rise up against him. He is acting, and his word does not come back void. His word does not get changed. His words are not, are not brought back by him. He doesn't call his words back. But the second picture is just as stark. In the same way that he rises up against his enemies and he will not be put off from that, he will not be scared away or terrified away, he will carry out his will fighting on Mount Zion. He is also, this other picture, like birds hovering. So Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. So again, clear picture. God rising himself up, coming against these enemies, protecting his people. We'll come back to that idea as well, because we're going to need to tie a lot of these ideas together to see how they all point us forward to our perfect salvation. Well, what makes the people in Jerusalem uh, be able to be protected by God? There's There's verse six and seven. Turn, repent, turn away from your own wisdom, your own strength, your own counsel to him from whom people have deeply revolted, have deeply pushed away from. And he's talking to the children of Israel. This is the same thing that we ran into last chapter in verse 15. For this says um, the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and repenting and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Well, here the picture is willingness, because what does verse 7 show? It shows the fruit of that repentance, where they get rid of all their idols, they repent of their idolatry, which is also what we're shown in chapter 30 and verse 22, that will happen when, when the Lord begins to work in light, in favor for his people, they are defiling their idols that are before them in verse 22. But those who don't, they're pictured in Assyria. Look at verse 8. And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man. Now that's important, isn't it? God's people are going to the Egyptians and depending on their swords and horses and chariots. But the Assyrians, the ultimate enemy, are going to fall by a sword. But it's not going to be a man's sword. Why? Because God is spirit. And he will work in his way. He will work in miraculous ways. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. Now that's exactly what we're going to see in a few chapters if you've read ahead, isn't it? In chapter 7, in verse 36, we see the summary where the Spirit of the Lord goes out and does God's work against the Assyrians. And 185,000 soldiers are killed. Not Not a sword of the flesh, but God's sword by His Spirit. So He's tipping our hand already to prepare us for the historical account that awaits us. He'll try to flee from the sword, but his young men will be forced into forced labor. His rock, verse 9, probably referring to the king of Assyria. Um, it could just be referring to their, um, their supposed protection uh, as if they're hiding in the rocks and the crags. But I think it's really talking about the rock, the king, the king of Assyria shall pass away in terror. And I think that because the, the second part of that couplet says, and his officers desert the standard in panic. So that thing that marks them out is still claiming the hill. They desert it and give it up to their foes, which is the angel of the Lord working against them in history. And this is all declared by the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Remember, we saw that imagery at the end of chapter 30, the end of last week's text. That this is the, the place of God's dwelling is the place where he manifests himself both in judgment and in blessing. And so Jerusalem becomes this this place of fire. The furnace itself of God's judgment is in Jerusalem as he comes against his enemies and saves his people. 
So the wisdom and strength of God overcomes the wisdom and strength of mankind. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to apply this, a lot of this to us today. There'll be, there'll be application, but not in the same way, because we've heard this application in almost every woe, haven't we? This is God's word to his people, reminding them over and over and over that he is the trustworthy one, no one else. The the trust should not be placed anywhere except in him for wisdom, for counsel, for strength, for sustenance, for salvation, for their security. It doesn't matter. And so we have hammered this home in our own lives. And it is my prayer that is that in your life, as it has been in mine, where God is revealing constantly these ways where I'm trusting in my own flesh, in my own wisdom, in my own ability to assess, in my own power. And I don't want to do that. I want to crucify that and move back a step and say, Lord, I trust in you. I have nothing in myself that's trustworthy and you are trustworthy in every aspect of your being. So that's the reminder. We have a faithful God who has redeemed us. So we are bowed before him in faithfulness to his faithfulness. And it's a joyful place to live. We've seen over and over and over what happens when we're not going to do that. God cracks our bat and it is cork laying all over the field. And then we're not only repenting, but we're repenting in sackcloth and ashes because we are the people who know that our bat should not be corked. Our lives should be pure devotion to him, crucifying our own sin. Well, that's the idea behind chapter 31, where the wisdom and strength of God overcomes the wisdom and strength of mankind. But also the righteous reign of the Messiah overcomes the wicked reign of man, of mankind. Look at chapter 32. Again, we have a chapter division, but we're continuing in the same text. Behold a king. Okay, so now we're stopping. We're saying, what king? Well, the context will tell us, won't it? The context will reveal to us what king we're talking about. When when we're in this first verse, we're not sure. It's just a king. Look, behold, take notice of a king. And this king, according to verse 1, will reign in righteousness. And princes, princes will rule in justice. Well, the king that's in focus here, because we're going to see in just a moment, there were, there were probably in 702 B.C., right before the, this, this incident we're going to look at in the last several chapters of this section with Sennacherib and, and King Hezekiah and all their emissaries, we're going to see that Hezekiah is a much better king than his father. In fact, he's a very righteous king, but he's not perfect. And we could say that his reign in righteousness and his prince's ruling in justice was in some way attained, but not perfectly at all. So we we are still wrestling with what king, what king. But verse 2 begins to make clear. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. So all four of these descriptions are bringing us pictures of relief right? Pictures of safety and relief and peace and and comfort. And those are used throughout scripture to to define God himself in his actions against his, uh, for his people. And verse two starts with the word each. Is it each person is experiencing this or is it each king and princes? And I think in the context, it's the king and the princes, each in their reign will provide this. Each will be in their reign because their reign is in righteousness and their rule is in justice, which we'll see that developed again, righteousness and justice. The results of that with the people living in the kingdom 
our safety and security and pleasure and, and, and uh, protection from, from all. It's not just a physical protection from heat or rain or whatever. It is a protection. These are all those poetic metaphors to talk about the way God shelters his people and is their refuge that we have seen so much through this section. But now we're sure in verse 3 and 4, aren't we? The eyes of those who will see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give, will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten, will hasten to speak, speak <laughs> distinctly. <laughs> and no, that was not planned. I just, I'd love it to say if that was a rhetorical device I used, but it's... It's not. It's God keeping me humble and constantly reading the word in public. So, and I'm grateful for that. So these are promised again in chapter 35. We've already seen this in chapter 29, promised. We've already seen this throughout Isaiah, that these kinds of miracles will take place. And aren't we glad? Because how have the people been described? The people have been described as those who are, who are, um, pushing off God's word and they are astonishing themselves remember and they're bringing themselves into this lack of knowledge even so that they and their people they, they're so ignorant of the word of God that it's like a scroll that they can't open in a book that they can't read and so this is how this trickles down to the people that their eyes are closed they can't hear they can't see the Lord in his word or in his prophets they can't hear the Lord in his word or through his prophets and so this is a welcome time for us and it is also the language of the coming of the next age it is also the language that's promised in places like Joel chapter 2 that and in the new covenant that the eyes will be open so that we hear the Lord it's also the way John the Baptist when John was like hey is this the right guy he's he's languishing in prison and he and he asks and he asks he sends messengers to Jesus and say Jesus should we be waiting on somebody else and what's he say Part of what he says is, no, you know what the word of God says. The eyes of the blind will be open and the lame will walk. And he assures him that this is going on and it's a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So I think we're clearly in the reign of the messianic king that we were prepared for in chapter 11. And in chapter 9 before that, we were prepared for this. And so now our eyes are looking that even though this is happening in the local time, that there is going to come a time, and it will be marked by a certain activity, there is going to come a time where this messianic king will reign, and his rule and reign will be in righteousness and justice, and his people will rest secure. So keep that marked in your mind, because we're gonna, this is developed. This whole thing keeps developing through this. I'm trying to leave us room to make that development. In verse 5, we see some of these reversals that we have seen in the last several chapters. The fool will no more be called noble. And, and noble here is a, is a word that means generous or willing. That's what the word means. Now, maybe talking about nobility, like the people who are in power, the people who have influence. And we can think about the, the feudal, uh, European feudal system where the lords and, and the nobles controlled the land. And those who were good lords were the ones who were generous with their land. And they provided businesses and they provided for their people. So the idea here in the noble, it could be talking about those in power. And I think it has a little bit of that. But it's also describing a person who is generous and is willing. Now, that, that would be a mark of God himself, would it not? It would be a mark of a changed situation. The fool will no more be called the noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Now, before we even get to his exposition of that, is, doesn't that sound like today? Yes. 
it, it sounds like what we're dealing with. Think back 20 years at our public figures and what they said on the outside, but what they were planning behind the scenes. Now what they were planning behind the scenes is what they're saying on the outside. We're, we're calling ev- evil things good and good things evil. Before that happened, but it happened outside of our eyes. Government officials and, and, and Hollywood elites and sporting elites and all the people who are out in the public eye. They are the fools, they are the scoundrels who have been lifted up in the world as if they're speaking uh, noble and generous and honorable things. And when we stand up against them, then we're put down as being those who don't want truth or don't love science or whatever. So Isaiah's like looking forward to today in our country, I think, as he describes this. I wonder if he's looking forward to our lives, your life, my life. That on the inside, we're acting foolishly, but on the outside, we're looked at as nobility. We're looked at as noble, generous. On the inside, we're acting as scoundrels, but on the outside, we're looking like we're honorable. Our bats are corked, and God hasn't yet broken them in public in front of everyone. But he starts to describe this even more in verse 6, doesn't he? For, so he's going to give us now a description of why he said what he said in verse 5. The fool speaks folly. Now, the first thing we know about a fool, according to Proverbs, we could go through lots of of passages on the fool in Proverbs, but a fool thinks in his heart that there is no, that's where their faulty point is from the beginning, right? They're thinking that they are the potter instead of the clay, that their wisdom and their counsel and their alliances and allegiances are the wise ones, that their strength is strong because they think there is no God. So the fool speaks folly. And according to the Proverbs, we have to know when to answer them in in their folly and when to not answer them in their folly, right? And his heart is busy with iniquity. Remember, this is poetry. So we have line one, line two of a couplet. So the fool speaks folly. His heart is busy with iniquity. So it's, it's giving us an inside look, an amplified look of what it means for the fool to speak folly. But then notice these four phrases, two, 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 and two. He is busy with iniquity, and now these four phrases describe what that looks like. When he's busy with iniquity, he is doing so to practice ungodliness. If a fool thinks in his heart there is no God, what are they going to practice? Ungodliness, because they're not concerned about a God who created them. To utter error concerning the Lord, or maybe better, against the Lord. I I think it could be either way, and I'm not sure which is right, but either way is wrong. A fool is wrong to, to utter errors concerning what the Lord has said, or against what the Lord has said. But also to leave the craving of the hunger unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. So not only are their words speaking against God and their actions are going against unrighteousness, they are by definition not being just and righteous in their attitude to those people who are in need. That is exactly the opposite of the character of God given to us in Scripture over and over, isn't it? He is the one who feeds the mouths of the hungry and who makes sure that the thirsty have drink. He cares for the widows. He cares for the orphans. And kings and spiritual beings even are held accountable when they refuse to do that. So this is the mark of the one who is pursuing iniquity. And they're wrapped up in Isaiah's words as the fool. As for the scoundrel, verse 7, his devices are evil. So his works, everything he's scheming, everything he's working out are evil. He plans wicked schemes 
to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is in sight. So this is the greedy one. It's the opposite of the generous and willing one. This is the greedy one. This is the one who's constantly involved in plays, constantly involved in manipulation. These are the people who are also always sending you texts and sending you emails that you have an inheritance from a Nigerian king someplace, right? These are the people who are sending you the text that your Netflix account has been hacked. And click on this link to unlock it. These are the people who are always entering into any situation for their own gain, not for the gain of others, the scoundrels. And in Isaiah's time and in our time, these are the people who have been exalted into positions of power and positions of influence. And God is in the business of turning those things upside down. And so if we're talking about the reign of the Messiah, we'll get more specific But we're talking about the reign of the Messiah. There is a sense in which God, through his people, remember, it's the king and his, his, um, what is the wording that is used? His princes. If we're talking about the messianic age, he's talking about the king and his people, those people who are, are residents of his kingdom, that there is a justice and a righteousness that is meeting out from them that overturns these old realities. And God's character works through his people is the vehicle that that happens. Look at the last verse in this section, verse 8. But he who is, ha, he who is noble, going back to that idea of no, nobility, true noble, plans noble things. And on noble things he stands, or he arises, rises up in noble things. So there we're talking about, again, the character of God, that those people who are the true nobles, the true willing, generous people, the people who are, who are exuding the character of God, they are the people who make those kinds of plans and stand in those kinds of plans. So it's, it's not only their desires and their, and their plans, but it is their actions in carrying them out. This contrast is shown where there is this um, overcoming the righteous reign of the Messiah overcomes the wicked reign of mankind. It's a picture of Isaiah's day. It's a picture of every day since then. And it rises and falls in the cyclical manner that Revelation tells us that it will. But God is always working because we are in the messianic age now. That becomes more clear as we get to this final section. The overpowering of the spirit overcomes the sinfulness of mankind. Now, I want you to picture this contrast that's just been given. And there's this contrast of a reign of a king who is full of righteousness and justice. And his kingdom is marked by that kind of a rule. And it is taking place in a, in a, in a world where there is another king also competing for that. And God is overcoming that, overturning that. There's an integrity in the kingdom that the people in Isaiah's day are ignoring. And God's people in Isaiah's day are ignoring I read about a prayer that is etched in the fireplace of the state dining room in in the White House. And it was written by John Adams when he was getting ready to come. His wife had just moved into this new White House, the new place that the president resided. And he wrote a letter to her that that had a prayer in it. And this prayer was this. I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and on all that shall hereafter inhabit it. That's the president. May none be honest, may none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. And so Franklin D. Roosevelt, many years later, had that inscribed on the fireplace in the state, in the state dining room where all the state dinners are had. So Isaiah is in essence writing that kind of a prayer over the people. 
And he's saying, we have this God who is ruling and reigning in righteousness and justice, and people of integrity should be living in this kingdom, and definitely the leader should be in this situation, and this should mark the people. But he looks around at his people, and he sees something different, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. Begin to see the outpouring of the Spirit overcoming the sinfulness of mankind. Rise up! You women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. Now before we go on, that reminds us of chapter 316 to verse four, chapter 4 verse 1, doesn't it? Where the women of Zion are used as the, as the description of all the sinfulness that are in Zion. The women are so unled and their lives are so cush because they don't recognize the warnings around them. And they don't do that because the men are not recognizing the warning around them. Those in the leadership positions are ignoring the word of God. We have this same picture given now. We're not just singling out the women here. The women are representative of the decay of the land. And Isaiah looks around and sees it, and he calls them women who are at ease and women who are complacent. Women who are at ease and women who are complacent. And this word complacent has to do with a a trust, but a false trust, a trust in something else. So God is speaking all around. He's speaking to the people saying, listen, I'm going to come and judge all of this. And the women, representative of of all of of Jerusalem, are living in such a way that they think there's peace, peace, even though there is no peace. They're living in complacent lives because their trust is not in Yahweh. They're not even hearing Yahweh's voice at this point. They are at ease. And we'll see in a few verses what that ease should look like. But now we're shown, down in in verse 18, but now we're shown what the ease actually looks like. And they're in this situation where God, through his prophet, says, Hear my voice, give ear to my speech. And he says in verse 10, In little more than a year you will shudder. You complacent women. So in a little more than a year, that's how we know that we're talking about, we're in the, in the area of 702 B.C., because in 701 B.C. is when this, this battle happens, this, this uh, uh, confrontation between um, is Assyria and, and God's people. And the kings are there, and, and God is reigning in that, and Hezekiah does the right thing where his, where his daddy did the wrong thing. So this is a little more a year. We're back in this present time. These are the promises of your future, but this is what your present time looks like. You will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women. And again, the same words, at ease, shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks." So the picture here is not so much repentance. Sometimes we think sackcloth and ashes as being repentance, but it's more mourning. You're being overtaken. You're being taken into captivity, and all your fields are failing. All the places where God has blessed you are going away, and you should be beating your breast mourning over this as God exacts judgment against you. And we see this this increasing in severity from the grape to the vine to the soil to the houses to the city to the palace. It increases. You're not just going to not have a harvest, but your vines are going to die. And it's all the way up where your gates are going to give way and your city is going to be overtaken. And you are at ease. 
You are complacent when this is what I've been telling you and I continue to tell you will happen to you. And it's going to continue to happen. And we've seen all this kind of language before. So it's the, it's the picture of the agricultural fall, the agriculture falling apart, the city falling apart, the walls falling down, the, the animals not being free, being free to go wherever they want. They're not penned. They, they go through a city that's empty. It's, it's, the, it's the city that we've already seen earlier in chapter 24 that was called the wasted city. Now, this is, this is God's city. This is Jerusalem that's being pictured here. And the people of Jerusalem are at ease as if this word has not been spoken by God. So they are not redeeming their time, are they? They're not listening to the voice of the Lord. They're living as if God has not spoken. And their own strength and their own wisdom will suffice for them. And God says, within a year, you will meet your destruction. And he says, all this is going to go on until, look at verse 15. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. Now, there we have the spirit coming in again. And this is not just God as spirit working or an allusion to the Spirit of the Lord doing battle. This is an an allusion to a future time when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit uh, himself, is poured out upon us from on high. So when does that happen? When does this kind of relief, because we see this in our own day, do we not? We, we see this in our own day where the enemies of God and even the people of God are living in such a way as if God has never spoken disaster. God has never spoken judgment against this, that, that God has not spoken against false teaching, that he's not spoken against false professions, or he's not spoken against churches that go away in their own strength. And instead of teaching the word, they teach self-help curriculum. He's spoken against that. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Not by every psychological pablum that comes down. And you have four reasons or four ways that you become a better husband or a better child or a better wife or whatever it is. God has said, speak my word to the people, even if they want words to tickle their ears. He's spoken against that. And yet much of the church today is acting as if God has never said those things. And that their own wisdom and their own cunning and their own creativity is what will actually bring people in. Oh, they're not going to come just to hear the word of God. We're going to have to put a $100 bill under five of the seats and advertise that. That if you come and sit in the right seat, you could have a $100 bill. And have all of that kind of craziness. The word of God is enough. Now we could say, we could say a whole bunch of other things about the church. Remember, this is to God's people That he's talking to the people who are his in covenant with him who have his word and are acting as if they don't know him. And this is the way we end up in our own lives when we hear the word of God and we put the but in the wrong place. I know what the word of God says, but and you have your own reasons why that doesn't affect you, why your situation is different. Now, you can plug anything in the world that you want to think about here. And that phrase will determine whether you're submitted to the Lord or submitted to yourself. I know what my situation is like, but God says, or I know what God says, but my situation is, and it will differentiate how you're acting in your life. And so God says that's going to happen until, so if you're outside of Christ, that is, that is the bat that's corked and yet to break. 
And God says, that needs something to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. Your motives need to be changed. Your will needs to be changed. And he says, all of this happens until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Now, we already know that John the Baptist was doubting a little bit whether that was truly the Messiah who came. And he needed what? He needed bells and whistles and $100 bills under the seats to prove to him, right? He just needed the Word of God. And that's what Jesus gave him. You know what the word of God has said, and that shows that we're in the messianic time, and I am the fulfillment of that. But the spirit comes afterwards. Isn't that right? This is the promise in the new covenant. God says he will put his spirit in his people in the new covenant. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Remember, all the people are speaking in tongues. They're hearing in their own languages. Um, and, and men are speaking in languages that other people can understand. And it, that people think, the people around them think they're drunk. Look at verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea. And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes on to preach Jesus to them. Now what, turn with, one, with me one more package. When does Jesus say that this happens in the scheme of things? Turn back to the Gospel of John. Chapter 16. Jesus has come. He is living his life. He's headed to the cross. His life is perfect. What he will accomplish on the cross is the perfect will of God, that the perfect Son of God dies on the cross and is raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is according to the Old Testament scriptures, so that salvation is brought to all who will call upon the name of the Lord in faith. Look at chapter 16 of John, verse 7. Nonetheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. So they're worried about him going away. That starts in chapter 15, right? Chapter 14 even. They're worried about him going away. And wondering, where are you going? And how can we follow? And they're concerned about this. And he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that I will take what is mine and declare it to you. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to declare that righteousness and justice that is promised in Isaiah chapter 6 under the Messi- or Isaiah chapter uh, 32 under the messianic reign. And he is carrying out the mission of Jesus and Jesus has sent us in the very next chapter he will send us out on that very same mission empowered by the spirit. We are his ambassadors and when we live according to his word we are bringing and advancing his kingdom which is marked by especially in our Isaiah passages righteousness and justice because that is the mark of our king. So it is the mark of the rule then in the kingdom that we are a part of and advancing. So when we're talking about this messianic kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom that's inaugurated when Christ comes and the spirit comes after Christ ascends, just like Christ Christ said that this Holy Spirit would come. And we're living according to that way until Jesus comes again in power and glory and consummates his kingdom. And from there on, everything that's said in the perfect language of Isaiah is, is meted out and shown to us perfectly in the new heavens and new earth and in the new Jerusalem. And until then, our role is to be the emissaries of righteousness and justice in the world because we are servants of the messianic king who has come, lived, died, rose again, ascended, and will come again. So this is speaking about us and our world. And is it perfect yet? No, but it starts when the Holy Spirit descends on us from on high, which is the age that we're living in. So all of this is our marching orders. And we don't want to be the complacent ones. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 32. We don't want to be the complacent ones. We don't want to be the ones who are at ease, for there is an ease that should mark us that is different than that. Verse 15. This all happens until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Remember that same metaphor was used in chapter 29, that reversal Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Why? Because that is the reign of the messianic king in perfection in the new Jerusalem. And the effect of righteousness will be what? Peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust, the same word used for the complacency of the women of Zion earlier, forever. So this is the peacefulness. This is the rest, the ease that's promised, even that we saw promised in in last week's sermon. Turn to him from whom... In last week's sermon where we have the promise that in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust, that shall be your strength. So that is the picture that is given of the true rest. We are spiritually resting in Christ in a topsy-turvy, turned-upside-down world that God is in the process of judging and will eventually judge completely for his glory. And that judgment will be righteous and it will be full of justice. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Probably a reference to Assyria in the first line and Judah, or Jerusalem in the second line. 
And yet at the same time he's rising in, in destruction, he's also rising in protection for his people in verse 20. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. There's food for them to eat. There's security. There's no fear that anyone, any scoundrel will overcome your, your livestock. So again, the picture right together in summary form of his judgment and his blessing and what he, dis- what he intends to do and when that will happen and how that affects us. Now I want you to turn back for one more thing and I want you to look back at, verse, at these metaphors in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 31. This is the mysterious truth that we're seeing over and over and over again when God rises up in judgment against his enemies and salvation for his people. Remember, we have these two metaphors. The first one of the lion growling over the prey, unafraid of the shepherds that would come out against him. So when God comes against his enemy, there's nothing that's going to stop him. He's not going to be terrified at their rebukes or their shouting or daunted by their noise. He will rise up and fight on his holy hill, the place where he resides, the place where his, he resides with his people, and he will... Um, come against his enemies. And without even a pause, verse 5 comes and says, like birds hovering, so Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. Now, what is he protecting Jerusalem from? He's protecting Jerusalem from himself, isn't he? The verse before says he's rising up in wrath against his enemies, but he's going to circle like birds above the, the babies in the nest and protect his people. So he rises in protection of his people against his own wrath. It's an amazing truth that we see. His wrath is coming to destroy, but he's also protecting them from his own wrath. And how does he do that? He sent his son. He sent his son to die so that his son on the cross bears the wrath that's intended for all people who would trust in him. All people who will put their faith and trust in him and repent. The way he protects his people from his own wrath is he sent his son and placed it on him in our place. What an amazing truth. It is the gospel. This is why so many people look at Old Testament books and after they preach it, they go, well, that should have been the gospel according to Isaiah. That's what I should have entitled it. I almost entitled the whole sermon series that because in every page, the gospel drips for us. And we're reminded from an Old Testament standpoint that God is going to send a Messiah who will die for the sins of these people and it will be effective. And the promises of the new Jerusalem will be carried out because God does not retract his word. And that's the word to us. So today, when we're living in this craziness, we are the people who are advancing righteousness and justice because we're tied to the word of God and we're acting according to the spirit of God, to the spirit of God's leadership. The fruit, his own fruit is being produced in us because the word of God is washing over us and through us and strengthening us. And God is advancing his kingdom through the work that we do. All of that leading to the perfect place where there's no scoundrels, There's no foolish ones there that can usurp the public places of authority because none of that evil can enter into the new Jerusalem. Amen? They're they're kept out. So we are living spiritually, tasting the food, the, 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 the joyful food that is coming in the new heavens and new earth. Isaiah prophesies it in the, in the 8th century before Christ. We live in it now and we're all awaiting his second coming. So that we can enter in and not wrestle with sin, death, 
dying, or anything as a result of the fall. All of that's wrapped up in Isaiah 31 and 32. So it is the gospel according to Isaiah this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, your love for us. We're thankful, Father, that we see even in this chapter your work, the work of your promised Messiah who comes, has come, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the work of your Spirit poured out from on high. We see those promises, Father, already fulfilled. And we see in our own life what happens when we are bowed before your word, walking according to your spirit, trusting in your son, walking in the security that you provided. And we ask, Father, that you would strengthen that in us so that there are no lapses for us. That as we try to walk outside of your security, as we try to let uh, other uh, intellectual doctrinal standards or practices overwhelm us, Father, you bring us back through your spirit who leads us in all truth. As we, Father, get overwhelmed with our own desires and forget about your sustenance, pull us back from the fiery sin that we want to pursue. We ask, Father, that your spirit would be strong through your people, that we might rescue those from perishing who are walking out away from your protection by ignoring your word. Let us be those, Father, who through your spirit bring them back, snatch them from the fire. We ask, Father, that our families would be shining lights of righteousness and justice as we raise our children and our grandchildren that our businesses that we own would reflect this kingdom value and that you would use that to draw other men and women unto yourself. to Because you have promised to continue to advance your kingdom and sum all things up in Christ. And we desire so much, Father, to be active and be used by you as you see fit. So bow us before your word. Have us trust in the work of your son. Let us sense the leading of your spirit as he produces fruit. Let us be thankful for your discipline as you prune us and you, you prune us so that we may bear a fruit and more fruit and much fruit and bring glory to you, not for us, but all for your glory so that your kingdom advances. The gospel continues to go forth and bear the fruit that you intended and your son comes soon for we, Father, long to see him come quickly. So we thank you for these words from Isaiah in Jesus' name. Amen.